Um, Kathy and I were taking a drive last week and went through a cemetery, and for one reason or another, cemeteries have been one of my favorite places. When Kathy and I were dating, courting, uh, I love to take my uh, future wife to the cemetery. <laughs> and uh, it always felt like my backyard. Um, I always love getting out in nature. It's one of, they're one of the prettiest places around usually, right? There's trees, there's water, you name it. I didn't think it was that weird, frankly. <laughs> Kathy's sister said, uh, oh, Mike's taking you on another date. You going to another cemetery? <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe I'm short-sighted somehow. Anyway, one of my favorite places. We've got friends there too, so that helps. Uh, this is... Uh, gravestone out in West Topeka of a good friend of ours, Mary Grace Robinson. And uh, Grace was quite a gal. She was a tiny thing uh, physically. You remember Shakespeare has that phrase about tiny or small but fierce? That was definitely Grace Robinson. I don't know if she was just probably over five foot tall. She was a little Scots woman. She was very proud of that. She was a Presbyterian like her dad when Presbyterians still believed and acted like Presbyterians generally. Uh, I've not known anyone in life, and I've known a lot of people who read and study and are academics, I've not met anyone who's read close to the number of books Grace Robinson did growing up. And what Grace would do is she had uh, journals, and on every page of the journal was one by one was a title, an author, and a date that she read the book. Now, I kid you not, I've got some of these because I kept them but I threw stacks of these away. Every, uh, one page might have had 20 books, and the journals were filled page after page. She was that kind of a reader. On her gravestone, you can probably read that actually better than I thought you might. There's her birth and her death date, but there's also a verse from John 11:26. It says, Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe in this. That was a, a great verse for Grace because not only did she love to read and not only did she love to read her Bible, but she was a believer in Jesus. And from the grave, if you will, Grace's belief comes through. She had believed. And she was asking through that verse on her gravestone, do you believe? Have you done the same thing? And one of the things I love about cemeteries is, and when Kathy and I, we drove through a little bit, and you look at those headstones, and you, know, you see something about that person's life, some essential quality about that person's life. Now, some of them have no more than a name and the dates, right? But my goodness, times have changed. And so now when you drive through the cemetery, one, one gravestone had the Kansas City Chiefs logo on it. There's a fishing scene on another. There's some words that are descriptive. Uh, some of the older school ones, they're these huge granite blocks, and all that's on there is the family name. It's as if to say, all you need to know is I'm from this important or wealthy family. But as we're starting in this morning, cemeteries are a great place to think about what would my epitaph be. The epitaph of my life would read what? And you don't even have to go that far. If you simply ask yourself the question, and this is on your study sheet, if I condense one or more of the key elements of my life down, what would that be? Or if someone else did the same thing, and, and oftentimes that's more telling, isn't it? What other people have caught from us, what we've communicated to them verbally or non-verbally, what's important to us? What would some of those key elements of our life be? It doesn't have to be one, 
But if you think about your life or if someone else thinks about your life, what word or phrase might they come up with that relates to some essential quality of your life like Grace's headstone does her? I have believed in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? I know who I belong to. Do you know who you belong to? Uh, The man we're going to read about this morning in Scripture is praised for one single reason. He doesn't get much ink on the front end of things anyway. But the one thing he's praised for is he's praised by God for being a worshiper. He's praised by God for being a worshiper. And we're going to catch up. We're in the series I'll mention here in a minute, but we're going to catch up, Lord willing, each week a little bit on the time and the place that we're talking about these individuals that we look at. You remember in Genesis 1 and 2, you got the creation account and God creates the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And the, the pinnacle of that creation on earth is Adam and Eve, his representatives, his image bearers. And everything's lovely and they're in the garden and God's with them. There's nothing restricted except one thing, fruit from one tree, don't do that. And you know, right away, Genesis 3, the villain of all villains is introduced. And that serpent of old, the snake, the tempter, the great serpent of old, uh, Satan, the adversary, the accuser, he shows up and he tempts Eve and Adam and they fall. And suddenly life is different. So right away they know they're naked and suddenly it doesn't feel okay. They'd been naked before and that was fine. Now they're naked and it doesn't feel right because internally they know there's something that they shouldn't be. And they don't want to see God. God calls and they hide. What's with that? God used to walk with them and they talked. There was open fellowship. All that's gone. The free interaction they had, guys, not just with God, but with each other. It's over. It's over. Now, God finds them out anyway and he confronts them. And as you know, he curses the serpent. On your belly you'll crawl. He multiplies Eve's pain in childbearing. What God did, it affected some of the key areas of his image bearers. So for Eve, she's going to have pain she wouldn't have otherwise had when she gives birth to children. But also, God says you're going to have conflict with your husband. You're going to want something with your husband that usually you're not going to get. There's going to be this tension in that relationship. That goes right down to today. By the way, all of these do go right down to today. He cursed the ground Adam had come from. He cursed the ground that Adam's got to make a living from. That was a big deal. The sweat of your brow... And then he casts them out of the Garden of Eden. Great image here by an American painter of that. So you see everything's life on one side, everything's dead on the other. So they come out of the Garden of Eden. It's all they've known. And all they know is we don't know God the way we did. We're at odds with each other. We're adjusting to this new life, life as it is now. And we don't know how long this lasts. Genesis doesn't give a great account of time, of of sequence, of how long a thing Last. We don't know how long it lasts, but they get down to the business of having kids pretty quickly because that's the next thing that comes up. So we are in our series this morning. This is week three, Lord willing, of 66 messages, heroes and villains. And this morning we're looking at the second person whose birth is recorded in the Bible, and that would be Adam and Eve's son, Abel. Abel, we're going to look at Cain next week, but I wanted to start with Abel. Now, in week one of this series, we looked at Jesus. He's the hero of all heroes. He's the superhero of all superheroes, we said. But we also noted that when God holds him up as an example for us, he doesn't say it's superhero status we have. It's not miracle working power that we need. All we need is faith. 
And we said, we described, faith is I hear God's word, I take it in and believe it, but then it does something, then I act on it. And we said, if we want to be little heroes like Jesus, it, it simply means that we take in God's word, we believe it, and we act on it. It's faith that makes us little heroes like Jesus. We also talked about the anti-hero, about the great villain of all villains last week. That would be Satan. And just as he was at work in the garden, he's at work today. We went through some of the ways that he's at work in your life and mine today. We also said this, you and I look like Satan, the villain of all villains, when we choose to be faithless, when we choose to ignore, not even take in, or ignore once it has come to our ears, refuse to be faithful to God's word. We said we look like Satan, that villain of villains, when we choose not to accept and sort of choose to thrive in the place and the role that God has put us, sovereignly put us for his glory and for our good. We also look like Satan when we are accusers of the brethren. You remember last week said he's accusing God's sons and daughters night and day. We look like Satan. We look like the villain of villains when we do that. The life of the first human hero, though, that God brings up in the scripture is Abel, and he shows us that God commends and values faith that leads us to become his worshipers. That's what you'll see this morning. I've got, by the way, the text is on your study sheet. You can read it there. You can read in your own Bibles. Read along if you want. But on one hand, Abel has very little ink in God's book. He occupies a few verses. And yet for all that, God praises him for faith, and he's the first one listed in Scripture, not only as a hero of the faith, but as a worshiper. And of course, that's brought up later in Hebrew. So the text is Genesis 4, 1 through 8. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So the first child recorded Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In the Hebrew, Cain sounds a little bit like the word God. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. That term regard, it means God looks with pleasure on that thing. He looks at it. He sees it. He doesn't just acknowledge it, but he takes pleasure in it. Uh, but for Cain, for Cain and his offering, God had no regard. He didn't look with pleasure or acceptance on Cain and what Cain had offered. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. What sin wants of you is not for your good. Sin is acting the desire for sin is acting against what's good for you. Contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Now, maybe he told his brother, hey, this is what God was telling me. I'm not feeling the love or whatever. But when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So God has regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's. Now, there's a, a verse Paul shares in 2 Corinthians 6, 9, and he says this, he says of himself, he said, on one hand, I'm not well known. 
the, the wide world doesn't know me well. He says, on the other hand, I'm quite well known within the churches because, of course, the churches, many of them, were born by Paul. This is the tomb of the unknown soldier. Unknown on one hand, very well known on the other. Abel is like that. There's not much about him in the Bible on one hand. He's not well known, doesn't get a lot of ink. But on the other, he's a really important figure in God's economy, and he's the first hero of faith. We know very little of him on one hand, but he stands in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. He's the first one in that list. Now, Adam and Eve, Genesis 4 said, have two kids. So the first two recorded births are Cain and Abel. And I'm sort of digressing here for just a minute to make this point because it'll come up again in, in the future in the heroes and in the villains. What, one of the things you'll see in Scripture is this pattern of the first and the second. So Cain's the first, Abel's the second. And what you'll see in the pattern as you go through Scripture, the first is natural is a natural man who can't please God. The first is the villain. And the second that comes up in these complementary stories is the hero. And that's exactly what you've got with Cain and Abel. It starts here with the first two births recorded. Cain, the first brother, is a villain. We'll see more of that next time. Abel, the second brother, is a hero. He's the hero of faith. So think for just a second. When you get to Genesis, just several chapters down the road, you see this again, don't you? Because you've got Ishmael, the firstborn, and you've got Isaac, the secondborn. Galatians 4 tells us that the firstborn persecutes the secondborn. That's exactly what you've got with Cain and Abel. And when do you see it again in spades? You see it when you get King Saul, the first king of Israel. You see it when you get King David, the second king of Israel. What does Saul do to David? He persecutes him. And friends, all of this leads up to the ultimate contrast, uh, Antichrist and Christ. So you read in Romans 5, Paul's going back and forth with the first man, Adam. Now, Adam there is the man of sin. Adam's the guy that sinned and fell. And what do you and I get from Adam by birth? We get a sinful, villainous nature. Christ is the second man. What does Christ gives us? He gives us hero status. He brings us into his tribe of faith. So this is what you see throughout the Bible, and it starts with Cain and Abel. Cain is the villain, and Abel is the hero. Abel is known for only two things. He worshipped God, and he was murdered by his brother. He, was, he worshipped God and was murdered by his brother. Now, with the few verses that describe his life, uh, God says that Abel is a success. Abel's a success. And what is with that? Getting ahead of myself, sorry. You didn't see that image, okay? <laughs> All we know about Abel is his brother killed him, and before that happened, he worshipped God in an acceptable manner. <clears throat> That's all we know. So did he ever get married? We don't know. Did he have kids? We don't know about that either. In Scripture, he occupies very little space, but the little space he occupied was quite significant. And I'm just thinking for you and me, most of us, I think, struggle with this sense of, uh, if we don't call it importance, it's significance. Am I okay? Am I important enough to be noticed by God and by others? Am I okay as the person and in the place that God has given me? And so if being okay means living in a large place with this larger-than-life 
persona or work, then most of us are in trouble. But most of us, we're not going to be called to that. Most of us are going to live lives like Abel did. But the key thing for you and I to focus on here is this. Abel pleased God. And Abel was a worshiper in that small little part of the Bible he occupies. And it is possible, and in fact it's what we're called to, it's possible for you and I to live extraordinary lives in very ordinary circumstances. And there is no ordinary Christian. If you're a son or a daughter of the living God, after the resurrection, you're going to have a glory and a splendor that no one would take for granted. Even though there will be a lot of us. None of us are going to take each other for granted. We're all sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's what's important. So if we occupy a small place in life, that's okay. You can still, through faith, as Abel did, you can still be known as a worshiper of God. The reason I've got this image up here, I'm reading a book right now by David McCullough, and it's on the Wright Brothers. And when I was a little guy in grade school, I loved to read. And what I loved to read most were the biographies. So Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone and Abe Lincoln and the Wright Brothers. They had two or three copies, different stories of the Wright Brothers. I read them all, and I read them multiple times. Now, if I say Orville or Wilbur Wright to you today, you say, I know who that is. First man flight, the first guys who got up in the air and actually made an airplane work. And so to us today, they're well known. But that was not true at the time that they brought about man's first flight. It wasn't true at all. They worked hard out of their bicycle shop and out of their house putting these initial planes together. And no one knew what was going on. Now, there were very well-funded works in Washington, D.C. The government was behind some attempts. Europe, in Germany, and France, there were attempts to get manned flight. That is, it's not a glider. It's not something that's just carried by the wind. It's something that a man can get up in the air like a bird and can fly around. Hadn't happened. Nobody knows about the Wright brothers. In some ways, they tried to make their work known, and that didn't work either. So listen to McCullough's description of this. So two guys that you and I know very well today, they're key figures in history. When this was going on, nobody knew who they were. So this is what he says in part, uh, and this is, this is their famous photograph. This is the first time, I think it's Wilbur on the plane here, that they got up. They had a guy there to take this picture. There were less than half a dozen people there at Kitty Hawk on that day in 1903. It says, what transpired that day in 1903 in the stiff winds and the cold of the outer banks, Kitty Hawk, in less than two hours' time was one of the turning points in history, the beginning of change for the world far greater than any of those present could possibly have imagined. With their homemade machine, Wilbur and Orville Wright had shown without a doubt that man could fly, and if the world did not know it yet, they did. The world did not know it. When they got this manned flight, they telegraphed their family in Dayton, Ohio, and they said, let the newspapers know. And so they did. Nobody cared. They didn't believe it. This went on for some time. They moved back home to Dayton. They, they got a field from a guy outside of town. And they kept up their experiments and they kept working. And guys, even then, they started having flights with a motor that lasted over an hour and no one in the world knew it. The first guys to get planes up and going and no one knows and no one cares. It's years later before they make the headlines. Orville's doing these uh, flights in D.C., 
Wilbur's in France doing the same thing, and suddenly overnight they're well known. But it was years after this occurred before anyone would take notice that these two brothers who owned a bicycle shop in Dayton had conquered flight. Nobody believed it. Now listen to this. And for me, this is the really telling thing. Now again, thinking of Abel's the first hero of faith in the Bible. And all he did was worship and he doesn't occupy a big, a big place in history. But listen to what their nephew Milton wrote. Their nephew Milton, who as a boy was often hanging about the brothers, would one day write... History was being made in their bicycle shop and in their home. That's where they were constructing those initial planes. But the making was so obscured by the commonplace that I did not recognize it until many years later. Now understand, this is a young guy who's rubbing shoulders with Orville and Wilbur. He sees what they're doing. He knows what they're doing, but he still doesn't get what they've done. It's only years later that he can look back and say, I just saw my uncles working away and they were working hard and they're smart guys and this and that, but I had no idea in the big wide world what they were really accomplishing at all. And he was there. It's really easy for you and I to look at our own lives, especially, I think, but maybe the lives of others and say they're insignificant because it's not a very big place. What do they do anyway? Think especially of uh, housewives and moms, I think, would be most susceptible to this. If you go from dirty diapers to dirty dishes and back again, does it really feel like you're, you're a world changer, you know? But it could be any one of a number of other things where we think the place that God has me, it's not that big a deal. Abel says, not, not the case at all. If you can please the maker of the universe through faithful worship, that's a pretty significant thing. That's the only thing that matters at the end of the day. So Abel's this, this little guy takes up little space and yet God records of him in Genesis and in Hebrews, this is my man. He's had an honorable name for 6,000 years. All of us have read about him for 6,000 years and yet he gets almost no text in the scriptures at all. So you can live in relative obscurity and yet simultaneously enjoy the applause of heaven for the sake of faith like Abel's. Let me throw out Zechariah 4.10 also. I don't know if this is on your study sheet. when the Babylonian captives came back from Babylon and they laid the foundation for the new temple, it says that there was this great cry and it's really loud and everybody around there hears it. But it says this was the problem. Uh, Part of the the shout was success. Some people were there that the temple foundations laid. Hurrah, we're going to be able to meet with God again. But you know what the other sound was? It was crying. It was lamenting. Because people old enough to have seen Solomon's temple said, This is nothing. This isn't worth celebrating. And it was to that thought that this thing is too little, that it's insignificant, that God said in Zechariah 4.10, don't despise the day of small things. In fact, in that context, God says, I'm in this. He's laid the cornerstone. He's going to see it because I'm here. This is my work. You and I are called to faithful worship. And it doesn't look like if our lives look successful to the world or not, That's still what we're called to, and Abel is the grand example of. Going back to our text, Genesis 4, 4 and 5. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no 
regard. Are you guys like me? When I first read this text and multiple times after, I kept scratching my head saying, what's the deal? What's the deal? Why does God look at with pleasure on Abel's offering and not on Cain's? Because the text does not tell us. The text does not say. So I'm scratching my head and I think, okay, so is it what they offered? Now think of this. Cain brought the stuff he was working on. He brought the fruit of his labors. That seems like a good thing. He's a farmer. He brings what he farmed. Abel's a shepherd, so he brings what he works at. So he brings a sheep. They seem pretty close to me. So is it what they offer? Was that problematic? Some people, there's a lot of ink spilled on this. Was it because uh, Abel offered a bloody sacrifice and that indicated he knew sin had to be covered and, and Cain didn't? Was that the deal? The text, again, doesn't say. Now, Hebrews 11 does say, and Hebrews 11 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Think of Abel's gravestone, faithful worshiper, or a applauded by God or pleasing to God in worship or whatever you will. But it says the difference that the text doesn't explain was that what Abel offered, he offered in faith. So it was faith-filled or faithful worship. That's what God applauded and approved. Faith was the only issue. Now, this is a big deal for us, and I think it's something that we tend to overlook all the time. That Cain failed to worship God in faith was not God's fault, but Cain's, and it was not a matter of information. So again, the text isn't telling us this, but we know some things from Scripture broadly, and so we can read some of those back in. Do you think this was the first offering these guys had ever seen? Probably not. They're almost certainly modeling what mom and dad had been doing. And... Do you think that God had given some, some word about what he wanted when they sacrificed? Do you think that's likely? It's probably likely. Right now, we know God's talking to them. So Adam and Eve in the garden, God's talking directly to them. But God here in Genesis 4 is talking directly to Cain. In other words, they have God's word. So Romans 10, we know that faith comes by hearing God's word. We talked about this before. You can't have biblical faith without God's word. Biblical faith is always a response to what God has said. These guys heard God's word. And when God says to Cain, if you do well, he appears to be emphasizing you know what to do and you're not. You know how to please me. You know how to approach me in worship and you're not doing it. He doesn't say get new information. He says do the right thing. It infers that Cain knew the right thing to do. God is speaking and he's not doing it. He's attempting to come to God in worship on his own terms. And you can't do that. You'll never get there. None of us will ever get there on our own terms. Romans ten seventeen: faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So whether it was in offering the blood sacrifice, which is what Abel did, or the manner in which the lamb was offered, Abel worshipped according to God's will and word. 
Abel worshipped according to God's word. That was faithful worship. He's the first example in Scripture of a true worshiper, and faith is the single thing that mattered. So let me digress again just very briefly to ask you a question. If faith comes from hearing God's word, and if we desire to be worshipers, what should we be doing? We should be, you could say it if you want, we should be reading our Bibles. We should be memorizing God's word. We should be meditating in God's word. You and I cannot bring faith-filled worship to God if we don't know what he said. It's an impossibility. In fact, all you and I can offer to God is variations of rebellion if we don't come to him according to his word. It's an impossibility for a person to worship God on their own terms. It's an impossibility. All we do is bring variations of rebellion. So if I'm a Buddhist, a Christ-rejecting Buddhist, I'm not picking on any particular group, okay? If I'm a Christ-rejecting Muslim, if I'm an agnostic, sort of, if I'm someone who goes to church regularly, but I'm doing it on my way, on my terms, none of it is worship. None of it is worship. It's rebellion. And that's exactly what you have in Cain. And we'll look more fully at that next week. But you can't come to God on your own terms. You can't worship God as it seems right to you. That's not worship. That's rebellion. So we've got to come to God. We've got to come to God His way. And that's what Abel did. Now, Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Whoever would draw near to God, draw near to God, offer God, praise God, worship God, must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. What you'll see in Scripture is God always dictates terms when we approach Him. Now, the Genesis 4 account doesn't list them, but we know they existed because God indicts Cain for not following His word. In Genesis 15, when God calls Abraham into a covenant, and there's going to be this worship together, God tells Abraham, you go and you get these kinds of animals, you cut them in half, you lay them out, you don't cut the pigeons in half, you lay them, you're going to worship, and I'm going to make a covenant. Abraham doesn't do that on his own. God tells him what to do and how. You read Exodus 19, when God calls Israel to Mount Sinai, and he's going to approach them on the mountain, before he comes down, he says, this is the thing. This is the way you set up your camp. You put a boundary on the mountain. You don't come up. You take these days to get ceremonially clean. You do all this. You don't touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, you're to be killed. You're to be executed. God's coming down on the mountain. He says, this is what you do. You come this far. You come no further. And if you do, you give up your life. Same thing. God says, it's my terms, my way. See, the same thing when God gives the law to Israel, especially in the book of Leviticus, so I've sinned. My conscience is bothering me. God says, okay, this is what you do. You take this sacrifice. You go to the priest. You lay your hands on him. You confess your sin. The priest takes that offering. He sacrifices it this way and not another way. Or corporate guilt or festivals or new moons. God says in all of those, this is the way you worship. You don't worship the way you want to. You worship the way I tell you to or don't worship at all. Because it's just rebellion. And that's what you've got here. So the question for us today is, if we're trying to draw near to God, are we drawing near to God in faith? And if, we're, if we've done that, if we're drawing near to God to worship, are we in fact worshiping according to 
God's word? Are we a worshiper like Abel was? Are we walking in the steps of our hero Abel? So let me ask you, I'll read briefly from Acts 4. Remember, Jesus dies and he's risen from the grave and he he tells the disciples, hey, go out and preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit's come in Acts 2. And in Acts 4, Peter and some guys are going up the steps of the temple and there's that lame guy and they heal him and it makes a buzz and a stir and they're called before the Jewish leaders. And Pete explains what happened. He said, uh, hey, let it be known to all of you and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, by the way, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead by him, by Christ, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Think of the setting here. Peter's talking to guys who are the priests who offer the sacrifices in the temple. What do you think God thinks of their worship in the temple? They're the guys that crucified Jesus. Do you think God sees that as worship? They're in the right place. They think they're doing the right thing. They're going to church, guys. They're going to synagogue. They're worshiping in the temple. And it's all rebellion. And it's all futile. And God accepts none of it. Pete says, and this is for you and I, Pete says there's only one name, there's only one person that can bring you adequately before God the Father. Don't even think of yourself as a worshiper. You can't get to the Father unless you come through the Son. No other name under heaven except Christ. That's why I hope, as believers in Jesus, we say Jesus is the only way to be saved. What about the pygmies in Africa? If they don't have Jesus, they're not saved. What about the Aborigines in Australia? If they don't have Jesus, they're not saved. What about Buddhists and Muslims and Presbyterians and <laughs> us? If you don't have Jesus, you're not saved. It's the long and the short of it. You come to the Father through the Son or you don't come at all. That's the deal. You can't please the Father if you've not come through the Son. John 14, 6, that memory verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If someone asks you, do you really think everybody outside of Jesus is condemned? If you don't say yes, you don't get the gospel. There's no chance of pleasing the Father unless we've come through the Son. We're just rebels offering variations on the theme of rebellion. So we come to the Father through the Son. When we've done that, and by the way, think of Abel, that first lamb offered that's recorded, that's a picture of Jesus. John 1, 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's a picture of Christ. Abel was worshiping in accordance with God's word and he was showing forth Christ when he did so. There's no other way to be saved. So the first question is, have we placed the weight of our sin, every hope of heaven? And when we ask ourselves, am I really saved? Or if I ask someone else, what's your relationship really at? The question is, what's my hope of heaven? If it's anything but Christ, it's a false hope. And it's not the gospel, and we're not okay. And when you hear people say, that's a good question. That's telling, isn't it? What's your hope of heaven? Ah, that's a good question. Ah, I'm not sure. They don't have Christ. If you're a Christian, if you've come to faith through Christ in the Father, you're a believer. But if that's not the case, you're not. You cannot please God. 
Hebrews 11.6. It's an impossibility. You're not a worshiper. You're a rebel. So the first thing to do is to settle that. The second thing is this. And this is from a passage in John 4. And it's a great, it's a great passage. I wonder how many of us are worshiping God vainly today. Either us in this group or just us around us. Based on this text. Listen to this from John 4, 23 and 24. Remember the setting. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah is at a well in Samaria. And a Samaritan woman comes up, he engages over a drink of water, they have a conversation. And she says something like this, you know, you Jews say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Now think of this for a minute. We generally think the Jews look down their nose at the Samaritans. That's true, but, but you don't get the other side of the coin. The Samaritan coin is this. They're idolaters. They had their own worship in their own temple on Mount Gerizim. The woman Jesus is talking to doesn't worship the way God said to. They've rejected the Jewish worship in the temple in Jerusalem, which is what God said to do. They worship as they see fit. You remember the Samaritans are part Jewish in their bloodline and they're part Gentile. And they take that mixed bloodline and they make that their, their worship. And it's an abomination. So Jesus is talking to a gal about worship who thinks her form of worship is okay. But she's an idolater, like everybody else, that's trying to come to God their own way. And so Jesus says this, The hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship, must worship in spirit and truth. There's a lot of uh, um, communication, argument, whatever, about what spirit and truth mean. I think it means at least two things. If we're going to worship God, we must worship in spirit. Guys, if you're not born again, you're spiritually dead. You have no spiritual ability to interact with God and worship God. When we're born again through faith in Christ, we are spiritually alive. We can worship with our spirit. As believers in Christ today, we've also got the Holy Spirit with us, empowering us to live faith-filled lives, and to worship. So we've come to the Father through faith in the Son. We're born again. I can now worship spiritually. I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit to worship spiritually. And I worship in truth because I worship according to God's will, i.e. God's Word. So Jesus says, if we're going to worship, we must worship in spirit and in truth, or it's not worship. For Christians, it's not worship. Philippians 3 says the same thing. Let me give you just a few examples of worship. Uh, Paul says this thing in Romans 12, and it's the end of a lot of theology, chapters 1 through 11. He gets to chapter 12, and the first thing he says to apply the truths he laid out were to worship God. It's his view, it's Paul's view of worship. So in Romans 12, 1, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies like a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, what Paul does here is essentially says this. He takes that Old Testament picture of a whole burnt offering. You know, most of the offerings, the priest ate some of it or the person who offered it, they ate some of it. But the whole burnt offering, you put the whole thing on, it's all consumed, it's all God's. Nobody else takes anything from it. And Paul says that's the way you and I should see ourselves. So Martin Luther got this in the Reformation. People still have trouble with this today. Paul says 
24-7, when you go to sleep, when you get up, when you're at home, when you're away, whatever you're doing, wherever you're doing it, every breath you take, every breath I take, is meant to be an act of worship to God because we're supposed to be like that whole burnt offering. We're on an altar, and everything we do is God's. Everything we do, everything we have, everything we think, what we're doing, where we're going, all that, Paul says, is to be an act of worship to God. So for Christians, there is no distinction between secular and sacred. God has changed that so that for the Christian, every breath you draw, every act you do, if you mean it to be, is an act of worship. Because I am the sacrifice. I am the the means by which the worship is occurring. So everything is worship if I mean it to be. In faith, I get it from Paul, I'm Christ's. My whole life now should be God's, offered to God according to God's word. So now all of life is a worship. We don't go to the temple to worship. We worship when we breathe, when we speak, when we get up and when we sit down. Another thing or another way Paul talks about worship is in Philippians 4.18 with our finances. Think of, uh, not Cain, but think of Abel again. What he gave God was the fruit of his labors. And that's really what you have in finances. So Paul says this in Philippians 4.18. You know, Paul was a tent maker. A lot of times he paid his way. But he'll say in 2 Corinthians, if you preach the gospel, you should make your living by the gospel. So you can do that. So Paul says to the Philippian believers, I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, the finances, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. It's an act of worship. They're giving those finances to Paul to support the proclamation of the gospel. Guys, this is something, if you read the statistics, Christians today give more than the average uh, Joe in the states. Uh, usually it's somewhere between 3 and 5%. That would be high. Uh, the states, most folks generally on the surveys are 2 to 3% of income. Now, by any measure, we're, we've been the richest country in the world. We're the richest people in the history of the world. And if you say you give 5% and pat yourself on the back, I would just say, I don't think you're worshiping the way God wants you to. We should worship with our stuff. The, the finances we get, that's the fruit of our investments. That's like Abel, I've worked over the flock, I take one of those sheep, that's what I labored over, and I give that to God. This is not a, a message on giving, but it's giving as an act of worship. You see that in 2 Corinthians. It should be prayerful, it should be generous, it should be sacrificial, and it should be regular. And if we're not giving that way, it's not worship in the way God calls it to be. So if we're worshiping in our giving, and I hope we are, that's what it's like. Giving is one of our intentional acts of worship. Listen to this from Hebrews 12, 28. You know, um, when you do a wedding, you know that you have the best seat in the house. You know, when you do a wedding, when you, you stand front and center and the bride and the groom go down, you see what no one else sees. You see, see, as the bride and groom go down, everybody else is turned towards them and they're watching them walk out. But you get to see the whole thing. It's just fun. And guess what? Here on Sunday morning, uh, right before and after service is one of my favorite times because what you'll, you just got the geese here. This, the, the conversations are flying thick and fast. Usually we can barely hear ourselves pray up here because there's so much conversation going on. Well, I love that. I love seeing brothers and sisters in Christ just happy to be together and sharing. That's great. That's joyful. But listen to this from Hebrews 12, 28. 
It says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Generally today, in the language of praise and worship, we're thinking joy-filled, which is good. We're thinking exuberant, sort of emotionally compelling, all of which is good. There's no, there's no problem with that. But what we tend to neglect is reverence and awe. It says, guys, if you get a grip on how awesome, how fear-inspiring in all the best ways God is, then we would worship with reverence and awe. That's the kind of face down on my face before God worship. God, I get a little bit of a glimpse of who you are. And I worship face down. And last, I'm going to read from Hebrews 13, 15. This is the, the last of the ones. You could find some others as well. But it says there, through him, through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. And one of the things we do when we come together very intentionally every Sunday is through the words of the song, many of which are straight out of the pages of Scripture, we're worshiping God with praise, the fruit of our lips, offering to God those things that are true of Him. But that's worship. But you got Abel, little corner of the pages of Scripture, and yet he's the first guy, Jesus says, the first righteous blood spilled in Matthew and Luke, and Hebrew says he's the first example of a hero of the faith, and all he presents is faithful worship. And you and I can do the same thing. But it's got to be according to spirit and truth. It's got to be through faith in the Son that gets us to the Father. And then the worship that we offer is according to God's Word. Hey, if you will, the worship team can come up. And if you guys would, I want to do the same thing we've done the last couple of weeks. I don't know if we'll do this every week, but I'd like to do it for now. Uh, pray with me. These, uh, I'll just tell you where this is from. This is from Revelation 5. And John the Apostle saw a scroll and he knew it was really important. You guys can stand up now. You can wake up and stand up. <laughs> wake up and stand up. Uh, and he knew the scroll's important, but it says no one's worthy enough to open it. And then he starts crying and the angel says, hey, quit crying because the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome to open the scroll. And then this is what the elders in heaven and the group in heaven around the throne, this is what they say. And let's pray this together as we get ready to sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.